0: Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
1: Good morning and welcome to WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass. We are just listening to an excerpt from the final speech delivered by the Reverend Martin Luther King 50 years ago today, on April 3rd, 1968. He delivered that speech in Memphis, Tennessee, where he traveled to support striking government sanitation workers. And a day later, he was assassinated and the history of our country changed. What does Martin Luther King's legacy mean today? What are the struggles we continue to wage for a fairer, more humane society? And how far have we come since that fatal bullet ended the life of our country's greatest crusader for justice? Larry Dorman and Rick Melita spend their days working on the unfinished business that brought Martin Luther King Jr. to Memphis 50 years ago, improving the plight of government workers. Larry is the communications coordinator for Council for AFSCME, which represents state and city government workers, Rick Melita is the state director for the Service Employees International Union. They're here in the WNHA studio at an important time for government workers, with ever-present dangers of cutbacks, a pending federal Supreme Court ruling that could damage their bargaining rates, rights, and as a fiftieth anniversary nears of that momentous event in our nation's history that is putting the plight of government workers back in the spotlight. Welcome, gentlemen. Long introduction, short hello. How you doing?
2: Hello. Good to be here, Paul.
1: Be here. All right. And I think I need to talk right in that uh, mic, Larry. Okay, I guess we're switching you over to mic four. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> okay. Anyway, thanks for coming in. What okay. did you think when you were listening? What what goes through your mind? I mean, that's an amazing speech. Both, you know, just the cadence and the power. Knowing he's going to get murdered the next day when he's foretelling his his death, and he's uh, doing it in such proud, spiritual, inspirational language. I mean, you you can't help it because swept along that. Now we've heard that so often in our lives, but now I'm thinking so much attention has been paid in the last few days as this 50th anniversary nears about the role of the strike for government workers, which is not usually what is
2: emphasized. Well, what do you think when you are listening to that? So thanks again for, for having us, Paul. And you're absolutely right. It's inspiring. Uh, it's certainly, um, chilling, um, knowing what happened the, the next day and, um, it reminds me uh, of how important um, Dr. King's legacy is and the fact that it's still so powerful and so relevant today. And you're, you're right that the sort of the back end of the story of why he was Memphis, in Memphis isn't always well publicized or, or told in great detail. He was there to help striking sanitation workers who belonged uh, to the AFSCME local 1733 in Memphis. And... Uh, Dr. King was fighting for economic freedom and economic rights, uh, as well as civil rights. And, and ultimately, uh, I think he, he became an, uh, an enemy of the state uh, as much for that as for his, uh, work on, on well, civil rights. Well, thing you
1: said enemy of the state, Larry, because I'm, I'm wondering if you're having the same perception I do that never before in an anniversary like this has so much attention been paid to the labor aspect and the economic aspect of Ling's message. Cause since King's death, he has been a hero of the state. National holiday, even Ronald mm-hmm. Reagan had to sign it. And we talk about his very difficult and courageous and central platform of racial equality. Right. And what it completely airbrushed out of it is that toward the end of his career, he made a pivot. And he said the fight for racial equality is, and civil rights is completely tied up in a critique of capitalism and a need for labor rights and against foreign intervention in wars like Vietnam War. And what the Vietnam stand and going to northern cities like Chicago, but also taking on labor issues in places even the south, like Memphis, changed the game. Absolutely. And then we hadn't talked about why do you think we're talking about it now, Rick? When we haven't, we didn't talk about it ten years ago. We didn't talk about twenty years ago.
0: Well, again, thanks for having me on. Um, just listening to that clip, it reminds me. I'm it's old an amazing enough. Clip. I, I'm old enough to remember hearing it. In real time, I was 10 years old when he was assassinated. Where were you when you listened? I was you know, at home in Ansonia, Connecticut, listening to the TV. You know, How and many so-
1: people, but that was on TV live?
0: No, it wasn't live, but they, they played it the next day to say, and listen to what he was saying last night, isn't this chilling? But, I mean, wow. one of the other th- interesting things to, to, to realize is that at the time that Dr. King went to Memphis, he was organizing a poor people's march on Washington. And that's where his focus was. Uh, On on economic justice as much as uh, as much as racial justice, and that kind of gets you know airbrushed away. And 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 all sides are trying to make them separate. He made them combined. Yes, and and it's interesting. I mean, you talked about how he's viewed now as this. uh, He's almost been canonized as a secular. He's a secular saint, and everybody's appropriating a bit of his message uh, to fit their own. To fit their own ideologies, you even hear Republicans saying, "You know, he'd be a Republican if he was alive today," <laughs> um, which I highly doubt. But well, they uh, should
1: read some of stuff <laughs> about capitalism.
0: Exactly, way, you know. exactly. Uh, but uh, but you know, to, to to look at his original message was one of economic justice and economic freedom. And you know, to your point, now uh, I mean, we're seeing struggles all over the country uh, for uh, for poor people, for low wage workers, for uh, or, excuse me, against economic injustice. And so his message, I think, is that is as resonant today as it was 50 now, years 50 ago. Years,
1: we could agree that he would be abhorred at the rise of Donald Trump. And yet that economic message is playing on both sides. So you look today's headlines, and I think part of what's happening is what's in the headlines. Today's headlines in Oklahoma and Kentucky, two red states that voted for Donald Trump. Trump thousands of teachers, public school teachers, are on walkouts, and strike, because they because their pay has been frozen and other benefits. Other red states, that's happening too. Donald Trump company country, West Virginia had the walkout. Arizona's mm-hmm. predicted to be next. So there is that kind of odd exposition of how we understand race and economics. fuse them. In America, we're still kind of divided on it. People who voted for a blatantly racist president on a blatantly racist vote are also responding to what would have been his economic message.
2: It's a good point. I'm, I I think, like Rick, I, I think Dr. King's message ultimately uh, at the time and certainly now was was transcendent. And I, I, I do have to read you a quote from 1961, and it, it, it's so relevant today. Um, if you can indulge me, in our glorious fight for civil rights, we must guard against being fooled by false slogans such as right to work. Wherever these laws have been passed, wages are lower, job opportunities are fewer, and there are no civil rights. We do not intend to let them do this to us. We demand this fraud be stopped. That was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. back in 1961. So you're, you're, you're right, Paul. The, I think that the message, that was a fusion message um, 50, 60 years ago. So let's still what today. you
1: meant by right to work. So that's a specific
2: legislative proposal that lets people in unions do what? It essentially lets people opt out and become free riders. Um, it's obviously a big case, a major case that's being heard by the Supreme Court. We had a rally that Rick organized back on February 26th when the Supreme Court heard the oral arguments. And it's, um, as Dr. King and others have said, um, right to work is a misnomer. If anything, it should be right to work for less. What happens is it's designed to... Um, as recently written about in the, in the guardian, it's designed to defund and defang, uh, labor unions. So they don't have the resources to represent their members by allowing people to, um, opt out of a paying membership dues That's the simplest way I can describe
0: it. And it's also important to recognize that under the national labor relations act, unions are required to represent everybody, dues payers, as well as non dues paying members. So, uh, uh, as we've seen it, perhaps in the media industry, once you give people a chance not to pay for a product, uh, people tend to not pay for that product. That's why, you know, if you look at print journalism is suffering mightily because of the rise of the Internet. When More people,
1: people are paying for the New York Times in the history of journalism and The Washington Post. Well, I, you have to earn it. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. You can't yeah. be some distant corporation that puts a few resources into covering community and, and create a monopoly and then expect them to support you. In-
0: yes. Yes, but, you know, but basically uh, uh, the industry as a whole there uh, has gone through some uh, severe shakeups. Creative, it's creative destruction.
1: <laughs> just okay, destruction. no, I see your point. So this is the way, one of the ways in which Martin Luther King's legacy resonates today, and it's really great that Larry pulled out that quote, because right now the most recent demonstration you guys <clears throat> have had in New Haven, which was just a few weeks ago, was members of... Um, I guess it wasn't your union. It was 1199 and AFSME, We're outside of City Hall, New Haven. And they are protesting because this this effort that began in the 60s that Martin Luther King was speaking out against, these right-to-work laws, where the idea is that if a government union or another union represents you and bargains and gets you a contract, you don't have to pay dues to them. These corporations have been pushing these laws since then, since King's Day. to But now, only now, in the last, I guess, 10 years, with the rise of Scott Walker in Wisconsin and, Efforts funded by the Koch brothers at the state levels to a group called ALEC at the mm-hmm. state capitals. Mm-hmm. Are these laws actually getting passed? And now, not only does right to work laws getting passed, we can opt out of dues. There's a case now before the um, Supreme, Supreme Court, Court called Janus's American Federation uh, Janice against AFSCME, yep. in which they're going to overturn an Illinois law that requires public employees to pay covers un, the fees to cover their bargaining costs. And what that is, you guys kind of already lost the fight that their fees can cover your political activity. And we can talk about that and why that's important too. But now they're going after the basic fees to cover you representing them. And it looks like you're going to lose. And what I felt at that rally that day is you're getting ready for what's the next step, knowing that um, Republican appointees to the Supreme court are, are going to go all the way and overturn that.
2: Right. I, absolutely. I, you know, Neil Gorsuch is, is the president's uh, appointee to the Supreme court. Who's, who's tipped the balance. Um, he was absolutely silent during the oral arguments on February 26th, and, and I'm glad you brought up the fact that uh, this isn't some kind of uh, judicial uh, challenge that sprung from the grassroots, you know, that, that sprung from some kind of community level. Um, you can go to any number of, of websites from the Economic Policy Institute to, to other organizations that have um, been studying the case and have followed it, and you'll see that the Court challenges and the um, legislative and, and political activism around it to, to hurt unions and to damage unions um, comes from groups like the Koch brothers. It comes from the State Policy Network, the Center for Individual Rights, and, of course, the National Right to Work Foundation, and major, really wealthy uh, donors, the uh, Uline family um, out of the Midwest and um, other people like that. Escapes. So the, yes. The so if the Foundation. ruling comes out the way we
1: think, it's yep. going to nullify 20 similar laws nationwide and potentially decimate the political power of unions like ASME. So what is the strategy if you guys lose?
2: Um, you want to talk well, about SEIU? I'll, I, talk, I'll be happy to talk about ASME.
0: So. Uh, we're not going to uh, take it lying down. We're going to say that this is a fight. This is a coordinated fight, an ideological fight. It's not about some individual's right to, to save a couple of bucks a week on their on – their, uh, their pay, this is about a way to defang the labor movement, as you put it. Um, and you know with the ultimate goal of eliminating all sorts of progressive ideals that we think are good ideas that we've been raised on that we would hope to pass on to our children, uh, such as you know a living wage, such as being able to retire with uh, a pension, which is becoming more and more rare uh, to have health care provided to you they these right wing groups have made it their uh, their goal to to defang unions to make them irrelevant in the political process as a way to then uh elect friendlier uh legislators to So what's
1: uh, your strategy back?
0: Back is to just fight back. I mean it's important to note that those states that you listed those red states that you listed going on strike is against the law there. Right, you know, you can you can outlaw collective bargaining, you can outlaw uh, trade unionism, but you can't uh, you can't uh, make those underlying issues go away. We're going to continue to fight on that. We're going to fight on the legislative level here in the state. We're going to fight in Congress uh, to change the dynamic there.
1: So, in other words, you work on elections to elect people who might eventually get a presidential point, different president, or be federal and state legislatures that will not pass anti. Union, but pro-union legislation. That's, yes.
2: that's a big part of it. But I think also, um, I, I know Rick's SEIU units, both you know, and, and SEIU as workers in the public and private sector. Although the, the Janus case is obviously aimed at uh, kind of beheading the the public sector labor movement. But in the end, we're all one movement. So uh, all of our unions uh, um, are having intensified and. Uh, frequent conversations with our members, Uh, you know, I'd say the biggest kind of grassroots workplace response is that uh, we're talking to our members like never before about these judicial and legislative attacks. Um, We're making sure that they uh, sign their uh, AFSCME and SEIU and other public union membership cards. Um, But we're having, um, we're, we're having conversations literally around the clock uh, talking to all the different members at different workplaces about how what this case means to them and how we can fight back and you and do
1: have you do have a steep hill to climb in that yep. since nineteen eighty when a whole bunch of conservative foundations mimicked the tactics of Ralph Nader to create organizations that write op ed articles, change the debate, they've convinced a lot of people in America to disagree with what Martin Luther King really said. Right. And about right to work, about unions, about labor and to argue that unions just represent the interests of their staffs or their special interests, mm-hmm. and that freedom and rights involve not being tied to a union. How and do you yet, counter that?
0: Well, and yet, after all these years of very effective propaganda, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Connecticut Business and Industry Association, the Yankee Institute, and, you know, other groups in Connecticut have been very effective at bumper-sticker, ideology of Connecticut is a bad place to do business. Why the hell would you ever want to do business in Connecticut? Flee as fast as you can. and Which is, I always thought, sort of, somewhat of an ironic message to be given from a business and industry association. Uh, <laughs> uh, that that uh, well over 55% of people polled, and this is a, consist- a consistent number, would want to join a union if given a free chance to v- join a union. Uh, so their message is on one level resonates, but on a deeper level, even in places like West Virginia, which is a right-to-work state, even in places like Kentucky, which is a right-to-work state, and I would hazard a guess that Oklahoma is a right-to-work it state, uh, that there's collective action that's occurring, that people realize. But this
1: is the dilemma since the Reagan era and heightened in the Trump era, where if you polled people on what they think is in their interest, like think it would be interest to have health care, for instance. Mm-hmm. They will vote in the that direction that would favor labor and the Martin Luther King set of principles. But then, when they vote for who's going to be in office, they're convinced overall that us and them means us, the people, them, the unions, or the government,
0: or the undeserving poor.
1: But not the. But not the. Uh, right. But not the. Companies that employ them, or control
0: yes, the and and you know, and so we've set up an elaborate like corporate welfare system here in Connecticut. I guess one of the issues that the the General Assembly was was taking up yesterday was on was on. You know, we have large corporations like McDonald's and Walmart that uh, do very well here in Connecticut, pay their workers poverty wages. And rely on the state to make up the delta between their poverty wage and what is needed. to And you're to talking live about in.
1: food stamps and health care,
0: exactly. And you know, for years we've been we've been pushing that fight uh, about how people need a living wage. And you know it's 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 starting to it's starting to resonate. I mean, so you're you know, talking
1: about specifically about bills for fifteen dollars an yes. hour living mm-hmm. wage. And is there still a bill on the table to have big companies? Cover the cost, state Medicaid.
2: If that was yesterday, uh, it was in. I believe in. Yeah, judiciary. this is yeah. Um, SB five twenty one is still very much on the table. And you're very much listening to
1: Dateline New Haven and WNHHFM. FM. And our guests today are talking about the legacy of Martin Luther King, who gave his last moving speech fifty years ago today on behalf of Memphis striking sanitation workers, as well as foretelling his own assassination. A day later, and we're talking about that with what Martin Luther King's message was, and what how it fares today with AFSCME's Larry Dorman and SEIU's Rick Melitas. Let's talk about Connecticut. We just started. First of all, tell me whom your unions represent in Connecticut right now. First of all, um, uh, Rick, with the SEIU Service Employees International Union.
0: Well, you know we re- we represent people in public service. We represent people that are in building service janitor, janitorial and custodial workers, and we represent people in the healthcare care uh, unit like in eleven ninety nine so we have a we have a wide range of of and we uh, we have a wide range of employees, but many of whom are low wage workers we represent school bus drivers who are basically part time workers but have to be available all day long for less than in many cases less than fifteen dollars an hour and very limited benefits. We represent uh, daycare workers, home home daycare workers who are struggling to get up to fifteen dollars an hour. We represent uh, we represent healthcare workers, people that are uh, personal uh, personal care assistants uh, who have just won uh, a major victory to get above fifteen dollars an hour. We represent uh, people that work in group homes. We represent people that work uh, in DD in the DD sector. So we have what's the uh, DD sector? Uh, disability uh, uh, developmentally disabled folks. So uh, so we have a, a wide range of, of folks, and, and actually uh, people that are in the uh, – uh, people in the uh, uh, DD sector are, are struggling to get, uh, to get a living wage. You know, there's 86 private agencies in Connecticut that provide residential services for people with intellectual disabilities and developmental disabilities, most of whom are, uh, are paid um, less than $15 an hour. Uh, so on average, the uh, wage is about fourteen forty six, and there's at least 30 agencies that pay less than $13 an hour. So that's going to be a, uh, an issue that may lead to a strike coming up. In which sector? In the uh, intellectual disability and developmental disability right. of- And Larry, how many workers does
2: AFSCME Council for representing Connecticut? Sure, Paul. We represent 35,000 workers, um, majority A considerable majority of them in the public sector, and that is both we have state employees such as correctional officers, uh, social workers, and child abuse investigators, um, wage and hour agents, uh, state clerical workers. We represent um, paraprofessionals, library workers, supervisors, uh, police officers, plow drivers at the municipal level. And we also have private sector workers as well, including, for example, uh, 200 uh, frontline blood collection workers at the American Red Cross. So we have a pretty diverse union, actually. But most of our membership is, in fact, in the public sector.
1: So right now, at the state legislative session, we talked about two bills. That are on the table: fifteen dollars living wage, mm-hmm. and a bill to force large companies to cover Medicaid and um, right. and uh, food stamp. Right. Does it also include food stamp? Yes. And uh, but
0: but the big it's thing basically is- a fee to offset some of the costs that the mm-hmm. that the state incurs.
1: But the, some of the bigger issues on table are almost existential, right? I mean, I, the CBAC, the uh, coalition of, yeah, the coalition of, because even though we're, we're not a right-to-work state, that the coalition of state <clears throat> unions are being held up by the Republican Party, which now has pretty much equal control of the Capitol and very well could win the next governor's election, wants to change the rules on collective bargaining. <laughs> they say that they blame, we have a deep uh, structural deficit in our state, and we have pension funds that, uh, pension obligations that are mm-hmm. so old obligations that cover eighty five percent of every dollar we spend right now contribute to state pensions goes to paying for old money we never paid that you know that is not yep. and so there are calls to uh, allow to to change those agreements there allow there are calls to allow the state to override collective bargaining
2: mm-hmm. the state
1: legislature. Where you stand on that and how are you faring?
2: Um, well, it's interesting because just as we've been talking about Dr. King and the fight against right to work and the fact that there's now a right to work case before the Supreme Court, uh, kind of parallel to Connecticut, Rick and I were talking about this uh, over coffee before the show, um, there's this well-funded group um, called the Commission on, um, uh, on Fiscal Sustainability and Economic Growth. Uh, which is made up of CEOs and really rich people like Jim Smith from Webster Bank, uh, Bob Patricelli, a, a billionaire and health, uh, healthcare entrepreneur, Cindy Bigelow from Bigelow Tea. Uh, the list goes on and on. And this commission came up with a series of recommendations. Their their, their goal, their uh, mission was to make recommendations to move the economy forward. Somehow they got very fixated on collective bargaining and union workers. What specifically are they suggesting? Um... What they're suggesting is um, taking away the rights of state employees to bargain collectively for health care and pensions. And and I I don't want to limit it to the labor piece. Um, They're making some other dangerous recommendations as well, which include um, immediate elimination of the estate and gift tax, um, reducing taxes, income taxes for wealthy folks, uh, yet they want to phase in over four or five years an increase in the minimum wage. So they want to put more money in their pockets now, immediately, and do nothing to well, help. Well, it's strange to me about that you're talking
1: about a, a commission of experts that the legislature, I believe, formed saying we have these big deficits. Give us some nonpartisan advice about how to fix it. And what I can't understand is why a legislature run by Democrats. Are they? Oh, well, that's the question. <laughs> is they, it right by Democrats? That's the question. But <laughs> the truth is they're nominally Democrats and they would not include anyone from Labour because my understanding now is those proposals are all dead in the water because there was no Labour participation, because there was no consensus in buy in. But how did it happen in our state that a group run nominally by Democrats or where they had equal say could have a, a commission that's supposed to give wide ranging nonpartisan advice that would include only corporate figures on it and no one from Labor?
0: Well, you'd have to ask. You'd have to ask our Democratic
1: no, leadership about that. No, no, I'm asking that. you because you guys are active at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Why did you? Why is your clout so reduced that you couldn't even get one out of twenty people on that thing? Be, Go ahead.
0: I was going to say because at the end of the day, there is there is uh, de facto Republican control of the General Assembly. Right? We saw it on the budget. We saw it on a number of other areas where there are enough. Conservative rump Democrats that can vote with the Republicans on on issues uh, such as this. You know, I just mm. want to go back to the, this commission's findings for a second, because you know, about ten years ago or so, uh, the Governing magazine was writing about one of the ideas that California wanted to do, which, in the title of it, was called "Stupid Budgeting Tricks," in which they would they were proposing to sell various state assets, one-time revenues, one-time revenues, mm-hmm. and creating as a result. Long-term unfunded liabilities, because then they would lease back those properties. Uh, Arizona, uh, a red state, that's like sold- what
1: Oz Griebel, a third-party candidate, is uh, suggesting for Hartford. Yes, to yes. Sell off those office buildings that the state has, office the state government, and then lease the them state back. The back.
0: Yeah, I mean that's like you know pawning your wedding <laughs> ring, and uh, you know, and then paying you know uh, over the course of twenty years a thousand percent interest. Uh, you know, and uh, and ba- basically Arizona sold their their state capital. For about a million dollars, they sold a bunch right. of other prop- properties. So, as guys, well, what's, and they had to buy it back for a hundred million dollars so four years later. What's
1: labor's answer? So, we understand that Republicans and um, business groups are saying in the state that the way to fix New Connecticut's very real financial problems is to sell assets, but also
2: to take away gains made by labor. So, and, and what is the alternative? And let me in. Just to add, and I'll, I want to answer that question, Paul, and just kind of elaborate a little bit on something Rick said because it ties into my answer, which is that uh, I I understand your your question when you ask about uh, whether our cloud has diminished, and, and really, the, the the question is why has this corporate conservative majority taken over the legislature because it's comprised of both Republicans and Democrats. Um, very much enthralled to corporate Connecticut and in, enthralled to uh, some really rich people with some really bad ideas. So I, I think that's the problem over at the legislature. And I think our our answer and our fight back in, um, at SEIU, I want to you know give them credit because they have always been really strong about making uh, community connections. And I think the challenge in front of us then, Paul, is that we have to make sure that people understand that if you attack uh, state employees or if you attack uh, municipal employees, or if you attack frontline um, personal care assistants and caregivers and and advocates for the developmentally disabled, you're actually driving down everybody's wage and living standard. Connecticut has one of the largest wage and, and, and wealth gaps in the country. It's pretty alarming. And again, harking back to, to what Dr. King said, the problem is, and statistics bear it out, that when right-to-work laws get passed in 29 states or right-to-work states, When you diminish labor's strength or the strength of organized labor to represent more workers and to speak powerfully for workers, um, right-to-work states have lower wages, lower health benefits, uh, lower health and safety standards. The community standards, and I'm not just talking about for organized workers, when you look at the statistics, and that's why you're seeing uprisings now in in these red states, the the wages, the benefits, uh, overall working standards drop for every worker so when you cut public workers, everybody bleeds and I think that you know we have to mount a, a stronger uh, campaign in terms of what we say to the community, what we're telling legislators and, and, and making sure that we're electing the right kind of people who are going to stand up for and what And how do you people. stand
1: up so I, I understand I think I know what the answer is but I want to hear from you guys what is the alternative to these policies to meet the very real fiscal challenge the state has if we're not going to take back workers' pensions, their rights to bargain, their health care, we're not going to have them earn as little as people do working for private companies where they barely get much of a pension. They don't really get pensions. They have 401Ks one, one, uh, four four yes. and where they the health care is minimal. If you're going to pay them less, where, what is the alternative to doing that? I
2: want, I'll let Rick jump in. I'll just quickly say that part of the answer is that public sector union employees have jumped in and helped. And um, collective bargaining has worked for Connecticut. Uh, our members on the state side have made concessions that will total, as, as Dan Har reported uh, when he was writing for the Hartford Current, um, seventeen thousand five hundred dollars a member. So our members, right, you gave have, back
1: concessions, but we still right. have a deficit. So Correct. What,
2: what do we do next? So we have to fix our tax and revenue system. So what? How we fix it?
0: Well, I think that you know we have to look at income inequality first of all. If you look over the last twenty or some odd years. Wages have increased over that twenty-year period, single digits, basically been flat. If you look at per capita, and and that's you know taking out the point one percent who have uh, who made so much money in the last in the last twenty years. But if you look at per capita gross dep- uh, gross domestic product, it's more than doubled, right? So there's a lot more money washing around there, but it's in it's not going to most people. It's going to it's becoming increasingly. Uh, uh, concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. That's one of the reasons why this commission worked so hard to eliminate the estate tax because they wanted to take care of the poor billionaires that they claim are what's keeping this state floating. Um, you know, so I think that we have to address economic in- inequality. How? Uh, taxes.
1: Okay, so you can Taxes. Say, So tax the wealthier is tax. Bill's 19, gone, gone in, down a lot in yeah, the last yeah, thirty years. Yeah, so.
0: and in nineteen, I believe it was nineteen forty four. Uh, Roosevelt proposed one hundred percent top marginal rate uh, for the wealthiest What's Americans. It it's what? It's thirty six, thirty uh, five. <laughs> yes, federal on the federal right. level. Yes, and the, the comp, and and the, the the Republicans and the and the business community screamed bloody murder, and they compromised at ninety four percent. So, uh, and that's for the, the marginal, the the, the, the top rate. So in rate. Connecticut, where we have more say So a couple thi- yeah, yeah, I mean, a couple things. There's been of a things. proposal, to, I yeah.
1: believe it's 6.99% is the highest marginal tax rate in the state income tax. Correct. And I believe the proposal has been, which the Democratic leadership does not embrace, and so we'll talk about that in a minute, <laughs> but some Democrats do, yeah. to raise either on half a million dollars or a million dollars of income, marginal tax, once you've earned that much, the next batch, after I- that gets taxed at 7.5%. Yeah. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about?
2: Let me, yes, that absolutely. We need to ask our wealthiest citizens and our largest corporations to pay their fair share. Corporate Connecticut is getting a good deal being in the state. That's why the, the bill that Rick talked about, about um, stopping irresponsible corporate employers from shifting their employees costs onto taxpayers. That's a kind of, that's a a revenue bill that also needs to be looked at. Last year, uh, a group of us um, uh, worked with the, with Connecticut working families And, um, uh, the hedge clippers fund, which is a hedge fund activist group. Uh, we were recommending, yeah, isn't it? We were asking legislators to look at the fact that, and to address the fact that hedge fund managers pay, uh, uh, income tax at in a much lower proportion than the rest of us. But that's do. the carried interest loop. The carried, yes. exactly. and, and the way they
1: talk about dealing with that, the state is to try to make up that gap. Yeah. The federal but
2: that would loop. bring in hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. So, so you the answer do you things, get from you people, do including ma- fairly, including
1: other- Martin Looney, who's a liberal democratic Senator who runs a state senate from New Haven. He says, you can't do that. He says, we have a progressive income tax and the income's just not there. That the more at this point he's buying what Dan Hart and others have written, that a few wealthy people will leave the state from the Fairfield County who live in Fairfield County work in the hedge fund industry, and that just a few of them leaving the state costs us so much because they pay such a high percentage of our income tax revenues that they think it's a point of no return, that if you t- raise the taxes, you're not going to get more
2: income. Connecticut has more billionaires in 2017, according to Forbes, than I think 2011, so I respect that. So they're not leaving. You Disagree.
0: And, and Marty Looney is a great a great leader, a great, dem- uh, you know, a, a great democratic leader, but he's also dealing with the hand that's dealt to him, which is a split, a split legislator, right. uh, legislature. But he says
1: he genuinely believes that.
0: Well, let me, let me just yeah. say this, and you've raised this point about Democrats a, a couple of times. And, and, you know, the, the, uh, the analogy I, I like to make is we have a two party system, one of whom often disappoints us and the other one wants to destroy us. So, I mean, you know, we have to move the democratic party into a place where it's more comfortable about talking about economic inequality. And I think uh, they've done a good job at sort of, you know, working on the margins here on some of the low wage workers. uh, But uh, more has to be done. And I think that's the real reason why we've seen a rise in Trumpism over the years. You know, I mentioned earlier, I I grew up in, in Ansonia, Connecticut, which is the heart of like Reagan Democrats and now Trump company, a country, I should say. And, uh, you know those people uh, my people the people from which I came from uh, working class folks see have seen real uh, drops in their living standard it's real to them it's not some phony mirage right but their solution that they've come up with is well uh, follow this autocrat uh, is is unfortunately you know I think a wrong-headed one and will uh, will probably be corrected at some point as we often do corrections on our and our political pendulum swinging here.
1: And we're doing that on Dateline New Haven on WNHH Radio. We've got a few minutes left talking about Martin Luther King's legacy today, 50 years after his assassination. What would he be marching for and organizing people for? I think Rick Melita and Larry Dorman are our guests, and you're saying that in Connecticut, is it fair to say, you say he'd be for raising the income tax on marginal rates over a half million or a million dollars. He'd be for closing the loophole for carried interest, that he'd be for a higher living wage, and for having companies pay for, cover the cost of the state paying for health benefits and uh, and food stamps for people. Is that a fair summary where you guys are? Yes. Let's go to absolutely. New Haven because now the, the um, trouble rolls downhill and we have financial, real fiscal pressures on cities now. Hartford's getting bailed out allegedly with uh, $250 million of its pensions, I mean of its uh, bonding costs bonding. and another $50 million of help. New Haven is facing a tax increase, which brings out the pitch force of grades every time. You know, if you're going to raise taxes, people want to burn down City Hall. But there's a feeling among the people who run the city that they've reduced the workforce over the years, that there's really, if they want to have provide regular services and grow basic services, they have to raise taxes now. And that the state, they feel, is uh, dropping the ball and supporting the city. And as part of even raising taxes, there's a proposal for $3.6 million in concessions. Give backs from mm-hmm. labor unions and vacancies mm-hmm. from AFSCME among yep. other unions. Yep.
2: Yep. Where, well, how's AFSCME standing on that? Well, I get, you know, this is all very, um, preliminary. Uh, uh we are well aware that New Haven's facing financial challenges, Paul. Um, you know, we know the mayor has asked us in, 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 the mayor's initiating meetings with all the unions. And I guess my answer is to kind of get back to that bigger picture. Um, <clears throat> New Haven's financial uh, urgencies are a reflection of, Connecticut's failure, I think, to to tax people and to tax corporations fairly. So we have this um, archaic system where we're relying on the property on property taxes as as the main or primary revenue engine. Uh, we're not getting payment in lieu of taxes. We're not getting money back on all the public property in places like New Haven. We're not taxing rich folks or corporations properly. So the burden is, in fact, uh, Mayor Harp is absolutely correct. I mean, the so burden, in Hartford,
1: you're going to agree. When you go up to the state legislature, the unions are on the same page as the Hart administration that the state says we can't tax 54% of our property, right. but we're not going to let you recoup. We're not giving them money to right. recoup for the services you provide for the region. But how is it going to play I, out in practice, Larry, in the request for concessions? We, I
2: can't predict, Paul. I guess all I can say is that you know, time and again, every unionized worker and non-unionized worker in the city who works for the city of New Haven, who is employed by the city of New Haven, has stepped up to the plate and made personal economic sacrifices to protect the services all of our members provide to the people of New Haven. I'm just simply saying that at some point we have to have that bigger discussion about why do cities like New Haven and Hartford and Bridgeport run into these problems. It's not because of of poor governance at the top. It's because we don't ask the really rich people and the big corporations to pay their fair share. So we continue to rely on property taxes as the mm-hmm. fuel for local economic growth. And that's a bad strategy. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So, and then what is the state relationship with Ask me and the HARP administration? It was pretty poor a year ago. Tony HARP um, did 3144 local. She actually organized that when she was a city worker, was yep. one of the first organizers. Okay. Then she was kind of been at war with them or the union has been at war with her. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. there's been a change in leadership. Has that changed the relationship? You did, you did come to agreement on a contract which we, had eluded you for years.
2: Yeah, we do have our largest union, um, Local 3144, does have a tentative agreement with the a HARP administration. So uh, I, I think it's important just to, to realize, you know, we're, you know, we're never going to be completely on the same page with an, um, an employer. Um, Labor's job is <laughs> always to, to represent its members. By and, definition,
0: and, it's an adversarial relationship. But it can
2: also mm-hmm. be a, a, um, a constructively respectful one, and our job is to advocate, it, not just for our members, but for the services they provide to the citizens of the communities where they live and work and, and pay taxes. So we're trying our best, and um, I think we all have concerns. And, and I do want to thank Mayor Harp. She was at our our rally on February 26. She clearly recognizes the threat that the Janus Supreme Court case uh, poses to to everyday working people and and I would like think to, has the relationship improved yes I think it has improved but um at the same time um there are always going to be differences um we're never going to stop representing um, our workers and we're never going to um, stop fighting to lift up wage and living standards for the entire community that will always put us uh, at odds at some point or another with mm-hmm. uh, the employer
0: and and I'd just like to take a step back i mean you you're bringing up the the specific case of New Haven. I mean, all <laughs> Connecticut cities are in the same boat here, yeah. right? You know, I believe well, We're a better position than other cities? Yeah, we we're the one city in Connecticut that works. Maybe you right. could argue that Stanford works as well, but for a different set of reasons. The one uh, city that's not a um, an outpost of corporate New York, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you yeah, know, yeah. and and you know, and if you look at other cities like Waterbury, where the mayor of uh, Waterbury has come out wholeheartedly in support of this one uh, percent. Uh, uh, commission, you know, the commission of the 1% that came up with a 1% solution. Um, you know, th- that particular mayor in his role as CCM, uh, a leader in CCM, uh, has, uh, you know, has embraced that saying, we need to privatize more. We need to concentrate the wealth of, uh, you know, of, of our state into the fewer and fewer hands. We need to, we need to sell our assets. One other point that I'd like, I keep, I, I really want to use them as a punching bag today, but that this commission uh, uh, was set up. Uh, they immediately went out and fundraised amongst themselves, uh, set up a five hundred one c three organization, uh, and then hired a consultant
2: and a to, PR firm and a yeah.
0: PR firm and, and uh, to come up with their uh, to come up with their plan. And if you look at their if you look at their report, their seventy some odd page report, it is professionally done and there's a lot of research in it. But the consultant that they hired is the same one that took that took Puerto Rico uh, through its bankruptcy and was kicked out of Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. This is even before the hurricane, when Puerto Rico was at the verge of uh, fiscal collapse. Uh, this one firm managed to extract about twenty-five million dollars out of them. So they have some talent uh, of uh, being able to extract dollars from distressed properties. So this is the vision that these people have for us—that we are a a uh, a. Uh, you know, there for the picking. We are a distressed or almost distressed property there to uh, be made money off of, and you know uh, they've been dura- they've been uh, they've been called vulture capitalists. Actually, I think it was Mitt Romney that came up with that term, which is kind of unusual. Uh, but,
2: ironic, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, these vulture capitalists pick uh, off of uh, you know distressed properties and make a lot of money on it. And this is the vision that they turn to.
1: Okay, so we're, we have a thing I wanted to ask you before we leave. So for a few years you've worked for the um, Harp administration, you were in management, and uh, so you, after you've had a whole career, right, decades working for labor unions, you went to work for the Harp administration, now you're back working for labor unions. Did your perspective change at all? Did it look different when you were on the other side and you were being protested
0: by unions? It's always different uh, which side of the bullhorn you're on at a rally, right? You know, uh, uh, but I will say this, one of the interesting things, that I noticed there, uh, in my particular office suite, you know, there was... Uh, you were legislative liaison. I was legislative liaison. I liaised to the Board of Alders, yes. Um, but in the little office area that I was at, there was a big common area of cubicles that were all empty. and uh, Second floor. On the second floor, yes. I always
1: noticed that. That's so odd. People are ringing the... the- Floor in private offices, but there's nobody working at the desk in the middle. And
0: that's what someone said. Hey, uh, someone came in one day. A member of the public had some business there, and he came in and he said, "Hey, where's everybody? Well, uh, everybody out on coffee break." And I said, "No, there used to be people working here. You know, back right. in the day, but they're no longer here. I mean, you know, uh, Larry can talk about cuts to his membership in in you know in both the white collar and the blue collar locals here in in uh, in uh, New Haven, where in you know. Uh, Particular departments have seen drastic reductions in workforces, and yet the demand for city services remain high. So, what's our alternative uh, to sell our parks, to privatize our schools? Uh, you know, there there are no good answers other than coming back to. Did you have it,
1: did, you, did your views change at all on government unions?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, the interest, the fascinating thing that I would often bring up in when uh, in, in meetings was is. You know, the uh, management would say, "Oh, we can't do this because the unions." And when I was working with the unions, they would say, "We can't do this because of management." And both sides feel victimized by the other. So. And, and I know—is either
2: of them right? <laughs> no, <laughs> I know we're, we're getting short on time, but it's a it, and it's a great and legitimate question you ask, Paul. But part of the focus, because you mentioned before in your show about all these well-funded right-wing groups demonizing public sector unions. You know, when I grew up, right, and you thought about unions, it was UAW. You know, I grew up near uh, factories in in, you know, uh, Western Connecticut where UAW members worked and you had Teamsters. Um, you had a strong and vigorous private sector labor movement um that has been outsourced and you know nafted away and um through a whole for a whole bunch of reasons. Private sector labor movement has, has diminished considerably. Um and then that means is that like a nail sticking out of a board. Um, um, the vast majority of the labor movement is in fact um, public employees. Now, our members do important work for the city of New Haven, for the state of Connecticut. Ricks members uh, in the public and private sector. But so that that's the problem. So the attacks are now more focused on the public sector. But we can't forget the fundamentals, which is it's always been that the labor movement is the rising tide that lifts all boats. You know, we raise wage and living standards for entire communities. That's been our history. That's why Dr. King uh, joined our sanitation workers in Memphis. So again, um, the bad guys are out there trying to destroy labor. But when you when you wound, when you cut union workers, I do believe entire communities bleed. And our job is to stanch the bleeding and, and get healthy and find the way forward. Well, the attacks go on
1: government and on, on unions. Yeah. So final any final messages, Rick Melita and Larry Gorman, yeah, I mean, about know, just to Dr. Just, King if he were here
0: today? Uh, well, I wish I, he were. I wish he were. We, we we really could use his voice. But there are, you know, there's an old Buddhist saying that, you know, uh, spring always follows winter. Right? You know, we're going through a winter I thought th- <laughs> that until yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the Buddhists are a little off, yeah. But um, their calendar's a little Good off. Track, but uh, track, Rick. Uh, but, you know, we're seeing green shoots in a lot of different places, whether it's, uh, you know— well, uh, whether it's in, in West Virginia or Oklahoma or just, you know, people standing up to the Trump administration and rally after rally after rally. So there's always hope.
2: So they killed Dr. King, but they didn't kill the dream. Nope. The dream lives on, and it's up to all of us to figure out a way to make it happen. All right. Ask
1: La- Larry Dorman, SCIU's Rick Melita, fighting to keep the dream alive. Thank you for Thank coming you. on Thanks, New Haven great. on this historic day and helping us uh, break it down. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Now we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH.
0: Hopefully to someplace warm.
1: New Haven's (laughs) home for community radio.